Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. this morning is from Exodus 20 verse 16 and it is the ninth commandment you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor the Ten Commandments are divided into two tables the first instructs us in our duty to God that's the first four commandments and the second table of the law instructs us in our duties towards each other and so there we get the two great commandments, love God and then love your neighbor. And so far in the second table, we've seen that God teaches us that we must respect our parents. We, that's the fifth commandment, our, our neighbor's life, thou shalt not murder, his marriage, no adultery, and his goods, do not steal. And so here in the ninth commandment, we learn that you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And that's teaching us that we must protect our neighbor's good reputation. And interestingly, in the first uh, four commandments, of, or three commandments of this, this table, it's all about physical things. Um, murder, adultery, stealing. And here we're getting into words. In this commandment, we learn that God is interested in truth. Our witness must be true. With our words, we must honor the God of truth. We may not deviate from the truth without incurring God's wrath. Now, the obvious application of this commandment is perjury, the crime of lying under oath before the courts or a judge. There is no way for judges to judge wisely or fairly without having the truth. Because facts are confusing enough in themselves without falsehoods mixed in. So therefore, in court, we must not lie about or to our neighbors. We must not slander their name. That said, we should also protect our neighbor's reputation in community at large. Don't lie about people. And nuances don't change the truth or facts. Not saying the whole truth or leaving out pertinent information is just as much lying as telling an outright lie. Similarly, exaggerating the truth is also lying. And slander or spreading stories about others, especially unverified ones, is a violation of this commandment. And this sort of thing is rampant in our culture of instant and immediate digital communication. Facebook, Twitter, text messages, blogs, it's all speaking, it's all words, and it's so easy for us to fail on this commandment. Don't speak ill of your neighbor. God is love, and that means that our words, our status updates, our posts, Everything, our witness, should always be love. And witness is a powerful thing. Perjury can rob men of their property or even of their life. This is 
This is why in Scripture, the penalty for perjury is equivalent to what the, 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 the suffering of the person who suffered the perjury would have had. So it could be a capital crime. So slander and lies tear communities apart. False witness separates friends. It rips apart families and it destroys peace. And that's why God forbids it. On the other hand, true witness is good, kind, and loving. It builds up and does not tear down. It puts others first. It is fruitful and it brings life. Because true witness points men toward God. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. So if you're willing and able, please kneel as we pray to God. before us this morning. Acts chapter 21, verse 37, into chapter 22, verse 22. And uh, the context here is that Paul is in Jerusalem. We're in the book of Acts. Paul's in Jerusalem. He's just finished his third missionary journey, and this is his last time that we know for certain that he, that he went to Jerusalem. He, he was going there to celebrate Pentecost and to bring money and Gentile first fruits to the church in Jerusalem. And when he got there at the recommendation of James and the elders, he went to the temple to pay the, for sacrifices for certain men who had taken vows. And we covered this in the last couple of weeks, but it's, again, the context for figuring out where we're at here. So he went to the temple. He was doing this very Jewish, pious action to prove to the Jewish Christians that he was not—he had not been forsaking the law. He hadn't been telling Jews to stop being Jews once they became kind of Christians, and that was what he'd been accused of. So. In order, so in order to prove to the Jews and the church that he was not ashamed of the law, he was, instead he was happy to submit to it and to perform it. He, he's doing this. And last week we saw how in the process of being, being a pious Jew, he got arrested by the other Jews. He got arrested by the other Jews while he was purified in the temple. Certain Jews from Asia, from Ephesus, um, where he had spent three years on his previous missionary journey. They roused up a mob and they falsely accused Paul of teaching against the law, the temple, and the Jews to all men everywhere. That's the first accusation. And then furthermore, they accused him of defiling the temple by bringing Gentiles or Greeks into it. And that's something that Paul had not done. They'd seen Paul with, with some, some Greeks that he brought with him to the church in Jerusalem to, to, to show the first fruits of the gospel among the nations, but he had not brought them to the temple. Now that mob that was roused at that point would have killed Paul then and there if God hadn't intervened, delivering Paul by means of a Roman garrison, of soldiers, and their commander. So, so in the temple complex in, in Jerusalem, you had the temple... And, and right next to it was the, the tower called Antonia. Right, it was built there by King Herod precisely because of the Jews' propensity 
to mob and to riot right outside of the temple. So this was a gathering place, and the Romans said, we need order here. So they built a tower right there, right on the outskirts of the temple complex. Um, and and so, uh, so God has this soldier, this commander, he's really on top of it at the, at the moment that this mob arises, and he immediately goes, takes soldiers, and stops the mob from murdering Paul. Now, Luke has been very generous with the details in this episode. He's, he's telling us a story. He, he's, the story is both vivid and compelling. It's just like, this is exciting. This, there's a lot going on here. It's like you're watching a movie. or It's just you get a very clear picture of the story. What is going on here? Now, our text this morning picks up with Paul on the stairs leading up to the fortress. And, uh, and, we, and we're going to see how Paul, is, remember the soldiers actually had to lift Paul over their heads because the mob would have killed him while the, the soldiers were separating him out from them. And they, they get him up to the stairs leading up to their fortress, and Paul is going to gain an audience, and then he's going to give a message to this crowd of his countrymen who are trying to kill him. So that's what our text is about this morning. And so the first part of our text, Paul gains an audience. And, and, the, and, and in order to do that, he first has an interaction with the commander. And this man's interest, this commander, isn't so much interested in protecting Paul as much as trying to figure out what this riot is about. And so and, and he wants to know why the Jews are so riled up about Paul. So he figures... Well, we'll see. But he figures that if he can let Paul speak, he might get some shed some light on the matter. So, uh, verses 37 through 39 of Acts 21. Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I speak to you? And the commander replied, Can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins into the wilderness? But Paul said... I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So the first thing we see is that Paul doesn't fit the commander's preconception. The commander thinks that Paul's a ruffian. Um, But Paul's speech bears witness that he isn't the ruffian that the commander had supposed him to be. So Paul starts his witness in Jerusalem by bearing witness to this commander that there's more to him than the first appearances. There's more to him than just a riot rabble-rouser. And then Paul seized on this opportunity as as an opportunity to, to explain more to the commander about what was going on, because Paul could never pass up an opportunity to preach. So, um, if you think about this, Paul had just been mobbed. And this, they, they were literally going to tear him apart. And, and this mob is trying to kill him. And now he's seized by Roman soldiers. And most people would probably be pretty shook up after this violent attack and nearly being killed. But in Paul's eyes, this is a golden opportunity to have a public ear in the center of Jerusalem with the protection of Roman soldiers. So the commander takes the bait and extends uh, permission. Verses, verse 40 to 22, verse 2. 
So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hands to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. So, at this point, it'd be good to comment on a couple things. First, Paul's audience was a mass of Jews. These, these were Jews. And, and, and there were primarily two different, there were two different groups among them. There were Jewish Christians, which we know that there was a, a large number of Jewish Christians. When, when Paul arrived, um, James had told him, see how many myriads of Jews have come to the faith, and they're all zealous for the law. So we can, we can safely assume that there's a good chunk of this crowd are Jewish Christians. And there are unbelievers, Jews that hate Jesus Christ. And so the first thing I'd like to comment is that we have two different people intermixed in this crowd. We have Christians and, and non-Christians. And Paul's message is going to have two very different impacts on these two different groups. But second is that Paul's defense, he just says, brethren and fathers, hear my defense. Hear my defense before you now. His defense is nothing but his testimony. His defense is, is only a story. He's, he's just telling them, this is what happened to me. And Paul starts with an effort at conciliation. Now, notice how he opens with the common language. He speaks Hebrew, or Aramaic was the common tongue. Um, and it was in, in, the, in the, the, the current parlance or language of the time, that was Hebrew. So he speaks to them in their own language. And, and with an address of respect and companionship. Brethren and fathers. Now, this is the mob that just tried to kill him. And he says, I'm one of you. No, brethren and fathers. And then he proceeds to inform them that he is one of them by ancestry and history. He's a Jew. He was born in Cilicia, but he was brought up in Jerusalem under a respected theologian, and he was zealous for the law. Paul says, I am zealous for the law. Just, I'm just like all of you. So we read verse 3. I am indeed a Jew. Born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous towards God as you all are today. So this is conciliation. He said conciliation. He says, I understand your position. I, I, I'm just like you. And next he tells us how zealous he was, that he was the same as them, even to the point of persecuting Christians. Just like they were persecuting him, he says, I, I'm just like you, verses 4 and 5. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering unto prisons, both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness, and all the council of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren, and went to Damascus, to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. So he's saying, all right, the most respected among you sent me 
to go out and do what you're doing to me. He's like, I, he, he's like, I persecuted the way. I, I even went to a foreign city, Damascus, up in Syria, to bring Christians down to Jerusalem to be persecuted. I, I was zealous. I, you, you think yours? I was. He says I was. I was the man. And the, I, I have letters from the chief priests and the elders of the Sanhedrin. Now, at this point, the mob perhaps may have been wondering why they were worked up at all. <laughs> what, what, what's the big deal? And if they even had the right guy. You know, it's like Paul. Paul's just completely taking the wind out of their sails. He's zealous for the law, persecuting the church. But Paul's not done. He has changed from the way he was to the way he is now. And the essence of that change is Jesus of Nazareth. We read verses 6 through 11. Now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon. Suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid. But they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came to Damascus. So Paul says, Okay, here I was. I was just, just like you. I was just like you, at persecuting the way, to even to death and bonds, men and women. But then Paul has a theophany. He has a vision of God, a vision of Jesus Christ. It's miraculous. He is stopped dead in his tracks. He's completely blinded by the light of the glory of Jesus Christ. Imagine, he's walking. I mean, we covered this when we talked about Paul's, Paul's conversion back in chapter 9. But imagine, he's, walking, he's on his way. He is a man on a mission. He's, he's got letters from the chief priests and the elders. He is, uh, he is on the fast track to the high road in Judaism. I mean, he, he's, 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 going, he's going places. And Jesus just stops him cold and says, Bam, why are you persecuting me? And he does it in such a way that Paul immediately, without any hesitation, automatically recognizes Jesus Christ's lordship. Who are you, Lord? He doesn't know what's going on, but he knows enough. That whatever's happening to him is, is bigger than him, is more than him, is greater than him, and it demands his submission. So he says immediately, who are you, Lord? And by God's grace, Paul responded in submission to this vision. He says to the Lord, what shall I do? I mean, he must have felt just to, to have God come down and say to you, 
Why are you persecuting me? What happens every time we see men having visions of, of even angels? Uh, Isaiah having visions, uh, he goes to the throne room of God. They fall down on their face and I am undone. I'm a dead man. You cannot see God and live. God is holy and I am I'm unclean. And, and Paul is brought up on charges when God sees him. Why are you persecuting me? Paul, all of his companions fall down at this light. And Paul is broken before Christ. He's a man who's he was on such a violent mission, so driven, so passionate for the law, convinced he was doing God's will, and all of a sudden he recognizes that he's going directly contrary to the Lord. And God says, and, and Paul says, What shall I do? And Jesus shows mercy and grace, and he gives him guidance. He says, go to Damascus, and there you'll, you'll hear. And then next we see that God gives Paul clarity. He gives him clarification. He says, okay, okay, now you're, now you're in submission to me. You're obeying, you're going to Damascus. Now, now hear what I have for you. Verses 12 to 13 of chapter 22. Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour, I looked up at him. So God gives him physical clarity. He restores his vision, his sight. But next we see that God gives him spiritual or intellectual restoration of vision. And Paul, Paul was used to being a man with purpose, a man with a vision. His vision was for the glory of Judaism. He's going to, he's going to establish Israel. You know, he's, he was all about bringing the Messiah, except for his view of Jesus was wrong. And Jesus gave him a, he's now giving him a true view of what he's like. And so he's going to give him spiritual vision, a spiritual purpose. He's going to give him clarity of thought about this. And so, so we read verses 14 to 16. Then he said, this is Ananias, the God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Paul has a mission. Direct from God by the mouth of Ananias. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. What's Paul right in the middle, right now, this story? That's exactly what he's doing. He's carrying out his mission, his vision. He's giving his testimony. He's, he's now had 28 years of experience following that theophany. And he's in the middle of carrying it out right now before this crowd of his countrymen. He says, I was just like you, and this 
is what Jesus did to me, and now this is what I must tell you, because he told me to. I will bear witness before all men of what, what I've seen and heard. And from here, Paul goes on to explain that what that meant for him personally. What, what his specific calling was. And we've been covering that in the last several chapters of the book, since Paul uh, was called to the ministry in Antioch. But his specific calling is he was the apostle to the Gentiles. But here we hear his explanation of it to the Jews in Jerusalem, verses 17 to 21. Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance and saw him, Jesus, saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by and consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. And then he said to me, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. Well, Paul is not a rabble-rouser. He is not offensive for the sake of offensiveness. He's not just trying to stir the pot. That's not what's going on here. He could have started out this whole sermon right here with, well, the gospel's for the Gentiles. Jesus, I mean, the, you know, God's going to overthrow the Jews. Be, you know, he's, 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 he's bringing in a new olive branch. He could have started there. I mean, that's what his direct calling is. But Paul doesn't start there. That's where he climaxes. That's where he finishes because he's defending the gospel for the Gentiles. He's like, brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. Who is Paul? Paul's the apostle to the Gentiles. What is his defense? Jesus told me to go to the Gentiles. What am I supposed to do? What would you do? You can't just not do what God comes down and stops you when you're doing other things and says, do this. You must do what he says. It's like the apostles when they're before the Sanhedrin. Early on in the book of Acts, do we follow the will of God or the will of man? It's a no-brainer. God is God and men are not. We worship God. We follow God. We serve God. That's what Paul is saying. His defense is that all he is is a servant. A slave of Jesus Christ. And he had to explain the whole context of how he got to bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. For the sake of this Jewish audience, so that they would finally understand what he's doing and why he's doing it. Now, this message was received in two different ways. To the Christian Jews in Jerusalem, this is ample proof that Paul's ministry to the Gentiles was done in full and complete submission to the law. And to the Lord Jesus Christ who fulfilled the law. 
and with a hearty desire for the salvation of the Jews. Where did Paul receive his manifesto to go to the Gentiles? In the temple praying? Who was Paul? Paul was the guy that the Jews sent to persecute the church. That the Sanhedrin, the elders, the the, the Pharisees and, and, and the Sadducees, the, he's the, the guy that was handpicked to go out and arrest Christians. And, and Paul's using that as a defense for his ministry to the Jews. He's telling Jesus, Jesus says, get out of here, they're not going to listen to you. And Paul's saying, but they know me, they'll hear me, right? And Jesus says, get out of town, go to the Gentiles. That's what I have for you. I mean, we know that Paul loved the Jews. I mean, Paul wrote the book of Romans on his way to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey. And in the book of Romans, Paul says, I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are the Israelites. Paul, Paul says, he, he, he says, my conscience bears me witness, as the Holy Spirit will testify. I would suffer for their sake if I could. But Jesus says, look. So, for the, for the Jewish Christians, the accusation that, that drove Paul into the temple to pay for these vows has been completely and fully and satisfactorily answered. Paul's not against the law. He's not against the Jews. He's serving Jesus. And to the unbelieving Jews, to the, to the Jews who believe that salvation would be of the nation of Israel in a human, fleshly manner, to the nationalistic, self-righteous, and rebellious Jews, this, passage, this, this, this message, this gospel that Paul is giving, is not vindication. It's proof of his perdition. For the Christian Jews, this was, oh, 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 I get it. Because they believed in Christ. They knew the power of Jesus Christ. But to the unbelieving Jews, this was proof of perdition. And as we see in verse 22, the crowds reply. And they listened to him until this word, Gentiles, till this word, and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. That's exactly what they did to, to Stephen. Because remember? Stephen was accused of preaching against this holy place, the temple, that God's going to destroy it. And, and then he goes and gives a history of Israel and talks about how in all these places, all through the Old Testament, God shows up and talks to his people, not in Jerusalem. He comes to Abraham and Ur of the Chaldees. He goes to Moses in, in the desert in Midian. And in Egypt. And he's doing these wonders all over the place. And he says, in Jerusalem, you kill the prophets. 
this holy place, yeah, right. And when he goes and he finally brings this, you know, convicting message, they, they can't handle the logic of it, so they plug their ears, start yelling, and start throwing rocks. That's the best that they have. And that's exactly what Paul encounters here. Except for before, he was on the side of the rock throwing. And now he knows Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the hinge. He is what changes everything. And so now we come to the application. What do we take away from this story? Well, first, the gospel is God's story. Christians take part in God's story because we're his people. We're the body of Christ. But we are merely witnesses. Paul is part of something far bigger than he is. So Paul witnesses in Jerusalem, but his witness is no invention of his own. He just tells what happened to him. It's a story. Try and argue against a story. It's kind of hard. I mean, if it happened, it's the truth. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Remember, tell the truth. This is what happened. Now, stories are valuable and they are valid. We should love stories. We should be people of stories. We should tell our own testimonies. You know, grievously, in reform circles, we lack in this area. You know, we have a lot of Armenian brethren that love to go out and share their testimony and spread the gospel because, well, they have different reasons. But we need to go out and share the gospel. We need to be excited about our story because it's God's story. We, Our children need to know our story. They need to love our stories. They need to embrace our stories. They need to be given our story so that they can share our story with their children and their friends and their co-workers. And this gospel testimony, our own testimonies, should be told to both believers and unbelievers. The witness goes out to all men everywhere. In that part of the accusation against Paul, they were right. Paul didn't shy away from the gospel wherever he went. It just wasn't a message against Jews or Judaism. It wasn't a message against the temple. It was a message against sin. That's the offense the gospel brings. Stop sinning. But God gives you the power to do that. So we should share our stories with both believers and unbelievers. We should witness powerfully and faithfully because our stories are evangelistic and they're encouraging. If God's working in our lives, there's all kinds of hope and joy and encouragement in that. Our stories build up the body of Christ by instructing us about how God works in our lives. We're bearing witness. We're giving examples. Because God reveals himself in his word and in our lives. In his people. Study history. It's full of stories and good, powerful stories that are convicting. The message of these stories has to be ultimately the gospel. And that always means that what we proclaim when we proclaim our stories is Jesus Christ. And as Christians, as people who bear the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ, we need to see how 
Our lives are His story. So that we can share the message of the gospel. So that we can share Jesus Christ. So that we can share life and life abundantly. Jesus is always the hinge or the pivot of the story. If your testimony leaves Jesus out, then you've left the gospel out. Don't testify before men a lie. Don't deny your Lord. Because Jesus warns us about what happens if you do that. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before God. But if you confess me before men, I will confess you before God and the holy angels. Again, remember our exhortation. Don't bear false witness. Speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help you God. Pray for God's grace to proclaim the truth faithfully. Now Paul knew that in this crowd in Jerusalem, the mention of the very name of Jesus Christ would have a polarizing effect. It would split the crowd in the middle. Because those who loved Jesus would be drawn toward Paul, and those who hated Jesus would have been alienated from Paul. Their hearts would have been hardened against his message. Because Jesus told us that he brings division. He brings fire, and he brings a sword. This is the antithesis, the war between good and evil, and the light that shines in the darkness. But the discipline of God, the destruction of sin, is life for everyone who receives the gospel. And when God abandons you to your sin, when he stops disciplining you, that's the end of the line for unbelievers. So when we give our testimony, we need to fear God rather than men. We may not back off the hard aspects of the truth. Paul would have borne guilt. He would have been guilty if he had backed off of the condemnation of the gospel. Remember back in Paul's sermon to the Ephesian elders, he told them, he's like, I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not ceased to declare the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God includes some hard things. So don't back away from declaring it, even though it can be uncomfortable, awkward, or even dangerous. Because God is God. The gospel is imminent, imminent, imminent. It's coming. The gospel is coming. You cannot stop it. Jesus is Lord and God will crush all of his enemies. God has revealed himself to us as Lord of lords and King of kings. And he sits in heaven and until all of his enemies are brought under his feet. And our job as his warriors and as his witnesses and as his ambassadors is to proclaim that Jesus is Lord over the world. We must bear witness of what we know of him by what he has revealed to us in his word and in our lives. That every time we give ourselves over to him or give our lives over to him, he returns it with life and fruitfulness. 
That's that's the carrot. There's a stick. We know we know what we know is very straightforward. We sin, we deserve death, and we deserve eternal damnation. Every one of us, all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. But we also know that Jesus died to give us life, and God raised him from the dead. So everybody who turns to Jesus in faith has life, and everybody who refuses to do so will go to hell. That's pretty straightforward. And it's pretty hard. There's two sides. So, are you going to love your neighbor by declaring truth to them? Are you willing to tell them something that's hard for them to hear because you love them? It's worth it. Because life is beautiful and amazing and glorious, just like our God. Life is a gift. But it's short and it's dangerous because of sin. Because of sin, we all die. That doesn't mean we should fear, because God is in control. God is imminent. He's in control, and he has a bigger plan. He has a master plan, which is comprehensive. The gospel is comprehensive. Our God and his gospel is bigger than we can imagine. It's so much more than the Jews thought. Even the Jewish Christians, it was way more than they could even imagine. The gospel is about more than Jews and Gentiles. No, it's about mankind and God. And it's about all eternity. It's about Christ redeeming all of creation. Now, for us, it's hard to say what that will look like in the long run. What is that mind-boggling to think about that? When you look at all the sin in the world and how much evil and injustice, and yet, read the Psalms. God's promises are comprehensive. Read the prophets. God's promises are comprehensive. So we don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but we do know that it starts with faithfulness here and now. Look to Jesus. Proclaim his work, because the good news, the gospel, begins and ends with him. Because he is the beginning, the end, the alpha, the Omega, and your job is to tell his story and give your testimony and love your neighbor by sharing the gospel with him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Consider our uh, our high priest, and in the older covenant, in the Old Testament, when a man was had accidentally killed another man, the law made provision for him to have, uh, evade his avenger. He could flee to one of the designated cities of refuge, and in order to remain safe there, he had to remain in that city until death of the high priest. But when the high priest died, he was at liberty to leave. And then he could uh, go, and his uh, avenger could uh, could no longer attack him or take him on. This is a, this is an odd picture. Here is a man who is bound to a particular city, 
and yet it's the death of the high priest, which would ordinarily have been a time of grief and lamentation. This would have been great news for this, this man that had been held in the city. The high priest had died, and yet he was free to go. Yet we are in that same position. Our high priest, Jesus Christ, has died. And because he has died, we are free to go. We are free from the penalty of our sins. The accuser has nothing to say to us. For we may simply reply that the high priest has died, and that is good for us. The avenger might want to do us harm, and Satan would like to lay the blame on us and continue to indict us. But we are secure. The high priest has died. This is a plea for which there is, there is no answer. There is no retort or comeback. We commemorate the reality of this here weekly at this table. This table has been set for us in high places. We are free to go there because the high priest has died. And we are invited to the Lord's table, all those who have been baptized and who are under authority to Christ and his church, their members in a, in a church. By eating the bread and drinking wine with us, we acknowledge together that we are sinners, that we're without hope except for the sovereign mercy of God, and that we're trusting Christ alone for our salvation. So come, welcome to Christ's table, where you're free to go because the high priest has died. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.